0: This is Purple Radio On Demand.
1: Welcome back to The Female Gaze, episode six, I believe, and this week we've got a super special and exciting episode, um, tying off of some of last week's topics. When we touched on uh, Michaela Cole and I May Destroy You, me and Lauren were kind of brainstorming, like, what do we talk about this week? And we thought we'd talk about film, because uh, we're both kind of involved in the sort of film theatre community, or we are big fans of it. Um, and we have a wonderful guest with us today. We've got Natasha from uh, DUFT and she is the publicity officer for them. Say hi, Natasha. Hello.
0: Yeah, we're really excited uh, this week to have this conversation because I feel like it ties in very well with it being awards season as well, which we we briefly touched on last week, but we will hopefully get to grips with a little bit more this week about women's kind of position in in Hollywood Mm -hmm. and in the awards circuit in particular um but first it's that time of the week again chloe where i ask you who it is, is that time the, of the week who is your woman of the week, <laughs> this week
1: okay so on the day when this is being recorded the 12th of feb um it is two days before Valentine's or Galentine's Day, as we like to say. Um, but it was also Chinese New Year. Um, so Happy Chinese New Year or Happy Lunar New Year um, to anyone out there who is listening, um, even though this will be a week later. Um, I hope you ate really well <laughs> as well. So um, I was kind of thinking uh, about kind of my family and um, like reaching out to my relatives as well. And I got thinking about The Farewell, uh, which is an incredible movie, Lulu Wang. and. Yeah, I've got like a duo. Woman of the Week, Lulu Wang, who directs the movie, but also Rafina who plays Billy, the protagonist in the movie. Um, just such a brilliant, brilliant role, and I think for people who are familiar with Rafina's work, you've probably seen him in Crazy Rich Asians, but she's often like attributed the comic side character, um, and she's very um, well versed in terms of comedy and theatre um, and musicals. But like, blows away, blows my mind, in fact with the kind of like representations of um, grief and love that she can portray on on screen. Like such a gorgeous representation, such a gorgeous soundtrack as well actually, shout that out too. And would recommend everyone to watch that, um, even though it's a little bit of an old one, but definitely one worth re-watching. I rewatched it over Christmas next to my mum and I was just like, don't touch me. I, <laughs> there's, so, there's so much happening. <laughs> i think i might cry if anyone touches me right now um but she really enjoyed it too so yeah who is your woman of the week this week
0: lauren so you said at the start of the episode chloe how we kind of we obviously met doing theater and that's a big part of of who i am and what i'm interested in and how that kind of crosses into the film world a bit so my woman of the week this week is emerald fennel who i don't i think lots of people will have heard of and in lots of different ways um So she, at the moment, is getting recognition as a director. Um, And that is, again, the Golden Globes, which we'll talk again about in a little bit. Um, But she's kind of directed and she's written. She wrote Killing Eve. She's written... I think she has written a new film at the moment, which I believe is doing really well, called Promising Young Woman. And she's kind of done amazingly as, as a creative, but is equally really really well established as as an actress um she lots of people I know uh, lots of our really good friends will know her from Call the Midwife um she is also in The Crown she plays Camilla Parker Bowles in Crown um but she is also currently working with Andrew Lloyd Webber on the new musical adaptation of Cinderella as well wow. and i I just can't quite get my head around how she manages to fit this all in um I I really aspire to that level of multitasking but yeah she's got it all going on you know and she's she's doing amazing things so as a kind of leading British woman in the industry in particular so yeah and taking on the reins from Phoebe Waller-Bridge as well in, in Killing Eve is a big task I wouldn't want to follow in those footsteps so she's she's obviously doing really well for herself so yeah she's my woman of the week this week
1: amazing yeah Wow, so many credits to her name. I am, you know what? I might watch Promising Young Woman tonight because that has been on my letterbox because Tash watched it on her letterbox, and I I watch everything that Tash watches actually. <laughs> I it yet. Wait, I oh no, no, I maybe you put it on your watch list actually. I think so. Okay, I don't think it comes out
2: um for a bit here in the UK because I tried to watch it a week ago and it just it wasn't on Amazon.
0: Yeah I, I think you're right I think it might have been released in the US and not over here yet but it has got incredible reviews and also you just said Chloe which I thought was really interesting about how she's gotten so many credits to her name already I've just looked it up she is only 35 and she has Absolutely. all those credits. She was also in just to list a few Anna Karenina and The Danish Girl. Yeah. I, I'm just looking down this list and it's incredible and she went to Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> where she studied where she studied english so that's promising for us guys at least but but still she's really she's really fit a lot into a short space of time there very impressive oh my gosh woman crush wednesday even though it's a Friday. yeah very much okay okay. so tesh what who's your woman of the week because i feel like you're going to bring something exciting to our conversation about film already (laughs) yeah
2: she's not particularly relevant to this week um but I thought I would bring up Alice E. Um, she was, so in 1894, she was hired as a secretary for a camera manufacturing and photography supply company as a sec- as a secretary. And um, she became familiar with the company's stock of cameras and laser pioneer um, film engineers. And when she attended the first demonstration of film projection, she was, really dissatisfied with film only being used for scientific purposes and was really keen to start incorporating um, storytelling into film. And so she asked her boss for permission to make her own film. And the result was what is arguably the first narrative film. Um, And so she, from like 1896 to 1906, she was arguably like the only female filmmaker in the world And um, she directed and produced um, almost 600 silent films. Um, She invented close-ups and she was the first person to use like synchronized sound. And what I think is really cool is that in 1912, she made a film called A Fool and His Money. And it was the first film ever to have an all African-American cast, um, which is incredible. And um, recently actually, Um, Jodie Foster's made a documentary on her life with the title Be Natural um, and because she was this huge advocate for realism and had that on her wall in her studio to remind her. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the documentary um, kind of reminds us of how she's just simply been erased from history because she was a woman um, and highlights the incredible work that she did and how she has completely changed film forever. Um, I just think she's got the most fascinating story.
0: Yeah, I, that's an incredible story. I think as well, I, di- I saw she came up in a little bit of research I did for this um, episode as well. And I believe she started her own production company in New York. And her production company in New York was like massive business, did really, really well. And as a woman, she is obviously in charge of it. But this was 10 years before women in America got the right to vote oh my gosh and she's already having this like major success as a as a business person as well as as a creative which I just blew my mind that she she'd kind of gone to such levels of of success yeah I
2: just think it's shocking that she was I don't know that she had the opportunity to make that many films and um at a time when women just didn't have so many chances um I think it's just such an inspiring story. Definitely,
0: Very cool. Very cool women. Four very, very cool women to start off our conversation about the general women in film. Or as Duran Duran would say, girls on film, of course. <laughs> 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 little referencer. Um, everyone now knows that I have the kind of... Mental age of a middle-aged woman, but that's fine. We we move. If everyone it. already
1: do that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks, Chloe. So, as we've kind of briefly mentioned already, I thought we'd we'd kick off the conversation with it. Uh, the Golden Globes and award season. Anybody got anything they're particularly looking forward to about award season?
1: Before we dive into the what we will descend into, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. I just do want to shout out. Like the number of nominations for female directors this year in the Golden Globe. Yeah, that is, I think, really good news. Record breaking. Um, and Chloe Zhao in particular for *Nomadland* is like the first female Asian director ever. Um, yeah, nominated, which is insane. Um, and I think, yeah, as as Tash was saying about kind of women constructing narratives, I think there is such a wonderful kind of beauty behind female narratives of behind narratives that are constructed or um, written by female directors, female writers um, and the kind of sensibilities and sensitivities behind them are are on the process or in the process of being recognised and appreciated and for that, I am, I am. Yeah, def- thankful and excited definitely. Definitely.
0: Things- I think as well, like um, I, I know we've all watched this film this week in preparation for kind of our discussions, and we will talk more about it later. But there was a particular line in the new Netflix film, uh Malcolm and Marie, in which she asked him, would he have shot this scene the same way if he was a female? Yes. Um, yes. Which as as someone who has directed, it really made me sit back and wonder. I was like, What what would I have done in that position? And I think you're right, it's a different sensitivity to women's issues. Like you can put them on a stage or in a film or on the telly, but the way you approach them as a woman is intrinsically different because you can empathize in a different way. Um, So I think it's amazing that women are getting recognized for creating and, and kind of channeling these narratives but also for creating and channeling female narratives which is really exciting.
2: Definitely and I, that kind of reminded me in Malcolm and Marie there's a line that goes um, none of it is necessary but it's all about what you want in terms of um, Malcolm's filmmaking mm. and it just kind of heightens the self-indulgence that surrounds filmmaking um, innately and I think that when a man creates a film compared to when a woman creates a film their intentions and their aims are so different and so it means that characters are completely shaped in like completely opposing ways um and that's why i think it's so important to lift female voices because then the characters that we get are always going to be so much more realistic and relatable
0: yeah I, i think that's really interesting leading into this conversation about possibly the more negative uh representations of the golden globes this year as well um i know a lot of people have kind of tried to antagonize the situation with I May Destroy You by kind of opposing it to Emily in Paris which has got a nomination and I think um, Emily in Paris was the the show was created by a man and I think this presentation of a woman as appealing and as living a kind of dream life as opposed to what was a very raw presentation of discovery of a sexual assault story Um, and I think Antagonising those two things is really interesting. It's like what do we find tasteful almost? Does that make sense? I think the fact that we're rewarding women for present for presenting themselves in a way that is kind of palatable to the audience rather than necessary and important to the audience.
1: Yeah, I can't say I've watched Emily in Paris. I've only kind of been, gone into my living room, seen it playing, and walked out again. But <laughs> but that's not to say that it it might not, you know, it might not be of merit. Um, but I think. I think, yeah, I don't think the BBC or HBO for that matter have ever seen anything like I May Destroy You Mm -hmm. there's a single shot in it that um, she speaks about, that Michaela Cole speaks about in I think a Guardian um, interview and it's a very, very small shot it's a very, very short shot, it's probably like maybe two seconds long Um, and the BBC has never seen anything like it and it's kind of it's even a compromise that they even agreed to have that shot in in the TV show Um, it's yeah, it's it's. I don't. I I'm kind of speechless when talking about it because genuinely, I I don't think we've ever seen anything created the way I May Destroy You was created. I and I think it's such a testament to Michaela Cole having directed it, produced it, written it, starring in it. There is so much of her in in the show. Um, you know, she's behind the narrative, but she also is the narrative. Like she's carrying the narrative, and there's this weird kind of double strand effect where she's. In it but these things have also happened to her and an audience or a viewer is conscious of that as well and it's the show in every single way tethers you in it it reels you in it there's a sense of kind of getting trapped in the show and there's a sense of feeling lost at moments the show felt like a like a horror film um and i think it's super interesting as well how a lot of the black films or films with black casts have elements of the horror genre in them, Um, I think because we're so used to seeing maybe in the news narrative that we see um, associations with the horror genre, associations with shootings, with murder, Um, but it was also like really nice to see that there were moments of kind of celebration and parts where maybe the show veered towards um, being something, for example, like the threesome scene, right, where we see Mm -hmm. her going home with the two Italian guys, but it doesn't end up in this like compromising scene it's just a threesome and the two Italian guys just walk out afterwards but there's just such a sense of kind of relief that that happens but there's also the anticipation that oh my god what you know what is this gonna set like how is this gonna be set up we've got um, black girl these two white guys going home together like you know what's gonna come of this um and I think yeah as you as you say Lauren maybe that isn't palatable to people maybe maybe it's a lot for the critics or the film board I can't really I know I won't speak for them but there's so much going on that maybe kind of higher up institutions don't want to sift through all that. Have I do feel like the ordinary person absolutely
0: does. Mm, I think I was going to say, it's interesting that you bring out this kind of the difference between the ordinary person and the critics. Um, It's the American Film Association, I think who run the Golden Globes. And I think um, Mm -hmm. part of the reason I bring it up is this culture in Hollywood that I think we, we need to discuss as a kind of preface to the rest of the conversation in the, again, like we sort of touched on last week, you have these comedians who go up on stage and they kind of take the mick out of the situation and, and particularly take the mick out of, I've I've watched a lot of the Golden Globes kind of opening monologues mm. or kind of comedic performances. And a lot of it is kind of taking the, the mick out of the whole culture in Hollywood. There's a particular one um, with Seth Meyers, I think, who, in which he basically, goes around the room and is like, you can't speak anymore, you can't speak anymore because what if you (laughs) say something, what if you say something that you're not supposed to say? And it's basically taking the complete piss for want of a better word out of the fact that Hollywood is kind of riddled with these sexual assault scandals and particularly men in positions of power taking advantage of females around them. And you've got this whole kind of like casting couch culture and all these sorts of things. Is it not palatable because it reflects something too close to home?
2: That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I think in regards to I May Destroy You, it was such an incredibly challenging watch. And um, it raised so many questions about rape culture and sexuality, more than any show I've ever watched. And I was listening to Michaela Cole being interviewed by Louis Theroux, and he was kind of asking her, you know, what what, what were you trying to say? and especially in terms of, I think was it when um, uh, when one of her friends was went on a date with a girl, even though he was gay, and yeah. then basically um, she found out and was so distraught. And I think it kind of made us question whether that might have been a sexual assault um,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: what what it what a sexual assault actually means. And basically in this interview with Louis Theroux, she said, well, I'm not, I'm not answering any questions. I'm just kind of handing them to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so frightening because it, it's challenging everything that we think about sex. And, and I, I think it's often quite uncomfortable for people to watch that because they're really made to think. And uh, especially the season finale for me was one of the most like astonishing, ambitious, inventive episodes ever on television, um, personally. And not only in the way that the narrative worked, but also in terms of cinematography and plot and characters. And it was just so mind boggling. And I think that definitely it's, it's difficult for people to consume. Um, and sometimes I'm about to recommend the show to a friend. And then I think, actually, do I want to like if I don't know what's happened in their lives really and it could be really triggering for someone um and yeah I think that's a point to raise in terms of what we want to get out of tv and film Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes people just want to sit down in front of the tv with some snacks and chill out with their friends and they don't want to be kind of provoked to question everything they think about um, sexuality and rape culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe that's why Emily in Paris did get a um, nomination because it was consumed by so many people and was so popular.
0: It's. I think it's really interesting what you say here about this idea of being provoked. If we're suggesting then that the reason that kind of critics and stuff like that have been uncomfortable with giving it the credit that we all deem it deserves is that kind of idea of provoking. Why do we keep having this conversation every year? Why are we not learning from those mistakes if we keep being provoked and we keep making a joke out of them and we keep being like, oh, here we are handing women the microphone kind of in a very ceremonial mm. way. But then we still just can't fathom giving things kind of credit where credit is due. We, Why why does this happen every year? I don't feel like there's been a year in, in kind of recent history that I can remember, in which there hasn't been something that's come out of an award show in which everyone sat there and gone, oh, that felt uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's difficult to kind
1: of make excuses, not that we do, but try and make excuses for the Film Academy. But at least like, at least we are seeing from like the creative directors themselves, them kind of acknowledging credit. So um, the article in The Guardian where the Emily in Paris producer, she basically says, you know what? I may destroy you deserved it. Um, and that's kind of, like, humbling and quite encouraging.
0: Maybe you've raised the most important part of all there, Chloe, then. How much do reviews matter? Do we listen to them? Why Why do they do they exist for a purpose anymore? Like, there's this whole conversation um, going on around Malcolm and Marie at the moment. I don't, if you've not watched it, are we recommending people go and watch it? I would say yes from a point of discussion. <laughs> okay, so it's the whole kind of premise is you've got this couple who have just returned home after the kind of opening premiere of, of the guy's film. And there's this, the whole, the whole film is just them having prolonged arguments about the nature of their relationship. But there's this segment in the middle in which uh, Malcolm basically gets completely up in arms about the fact that a white woman from the LA times has given him a review in which he which he is not happy with the content of pretty much. It's not a negative review. He just doesn't like what it says about his film. But there's this ongoing conversation about whether or not this is the director who is also white talking through a black man to try and make his own issue with reviews written about his films feel relevant or important. Um, And I think it's a really interesting question to ask ourselves, like, do we pay attention to them or do we go off of what are next door neighbor said they watched last week and thought was great or like you said earlier chloe like other people's watch lists what what do we base our decisions to watch things off of
1: um gosh god that's a good question uh okay in regard to malcolm marie i think it is interesting so we've got a white director using washington as a mouthpiece to issue out his or air out his issues with the reviewing, the film critique community. But he's doing that from a position of, I don't know which film it was, but he re- he actually received an LA Times review that was not a wholly good review, but an asterisk in it as um, Malcolm does in the film. But he receives a kind of, I think, wholly negative review from an LA Times lady, gets riled up about it, <clears throat> and then presumably funnels that into Malcolm and Marie um, and kind of decries critics um and then funnily enough everyone's watching the film and all the critics are like what is this white man talking about (laughs) what is going on here and i kind of i i kind of love that sort of the effect of it like the the weird meta like hypocritical going mm. in a full circle effect of it like, like like him getting a taste maybe a taste of his own medicine like you just I don't know I don't think you can ever shut out the critics because like whether you give them like a, a guardian spot or like a letterbox spot or an IMDB spot like at the end of the day everyone is going to be a critic um everyone yeah. will be out there and they will scrutinize your work probably for very good reasons
0: but maybe that's the thing. Maybe we live in a world now that has surpassed the need for like official critics because we all have access to our phones and to the internet very readily. And like when you watch something, you message me and you said, oh, I watched this. It was really great. I want to know what you think about it. Do we need like we're, we're pass the need for a published review once a week of whatever's the next thing out and to just yeah. make all of our decisions based off of that. I think as well what's made me laugh is you saying that about the reviews coming out about um, Malcolm and Marie online and being fairly awful about it. Um, And I think one of the first reviews that came up when I Googled it before I watched it, one of the first reviews that actually came up was something like, Malcolm and Marie doesn't like film critics here's two film critics talking about all the reasons they don't like Malcolm and Marie. Yeah. Was like, it's, <laughs> literally,
1: it's literally a Spider-Man pointing at the other Spider-Man. And I'm like,
0: yeah. oh, <laughs> it's very funny. funny. I don't know. Tesh, what do you think about, about reviewers? What's, what do you I see think their place being?
2: Like a double-edged sword in the sense of, I often get, um, like recommendations from friends and then watch films, but they might have, on those recommendations from reviews. So I think you've got to think about that as well. And um, also Twitter, I definitely mm. kind of go to Twitter to see what people are watching because I follow like loads of cool journalists I like. Um, and But then again, I think what's interesting about that is that it's pretty much an echo chamber because I follow who I like. So they give reviews that I will like because yeah. you know, we must have similar minds
0: in the first place. Um, so we're, we're all the way back around then into do we watch things that challenge us and if if we it's so it's so, so fascinating. fascinating
1: you know what, i think the fact that we're telling people to go out and watch this film after the fact that i think sort of unanimously we didn't really like the film um is kind of a testament to like hey if it's striking a discussion point if it's a, a film of provocation then go on you know if it's a, a work of provocation and is inciting um pre- dark I think discussion (laughs) I think so then yeah
0: if yeah it's such a fascinating almost like psychology behind it I think we will never probably well we absolutely never in an hour's worth of podcast get to the bottom of this but I I do think it's really interesting the the like patterns of behavior and also how linking it back to kind of our female gaze how those patterns of behaviour inflict the way that we see women. Um, because I think those, like, comfort films, I think we've, we sort of touched on those things that you put on and watch when you're, like, having a down day or all the things that you keep going back to watch because you just know it and it feels safe. I think a lot of those, actually, in, in re-watching, particularly with this podcast in mind, I've suddenly... Looked at them and been like, okay, this is a slightly bizarre portrayal of a woman for me to feel safe in
2: That's so interesting. I was literally thinking of anger songs and perfect snogging as you were speaking, <laughs> because um, me and my friends were talking about it and how we used to watch it like relentlessly as teenagers and were obsessed with it like when we watched it at the time when we were like 14 when about like, the same age as who were in the film and now watching it I'm like, this is so, so strange um, to think that we thought this was okay when we were so young, That the kind of way that women are completely valued by their appearance and the emphasis is just on like the girl's relationships with boys um, and it's so competitive um, and it's quite an unhealthy way to think about relationships um, and growing up. And the way that's portrayed is, yeah, it's quite damaging, I think, Definitely. to look back on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even things that pose themselves as from a feminist angle as well. I recently rewatched uh, Bridget Jones, which, again, a, cl- a classic. And I think at the time, not that I was kind of alive or, or anything, but when it when it was first released, it was very much sold as like a woman's story. She's kind of quite a modern woman. She, she has sex with quite a few people and all those sorts of things, which I still think at the time of its release, it was less uh, acceptable, let's say, in the media that this woman kind of had ownership of who she slept with and just did it for fun and all those sorts of things. But there are still things that when I was re-watching Bridget Jones, I just couldn't believe they were saying. And I just, like, the whole whole Daniel Cleaver bit where he, like, talks to her skirt
1: and, and...
0: yeah, I know, and literally every, so me and my friends during lockdown have been doing a kind of, every now and then, we have a Netflix party and we watch kind of an old classic rom-com. And of course, Hugh Grant comes up in them all the time because it's, it's his kind of breeding ground or whatever. this where he lives, he's I think. <laughs> he, lives, he lives in rom-com land. Like schools. Um, but the, the blatant misogyny that his character in almost every single film he's in gives off but we all romanticize him. Like, why, why, why do we think that's a nice thing? I just, it's really bizarre that we find those things comforting and almost something to, like, look up to. It's interesting,
1: but the male gaze. So the fact that men want to have things, attain things, but women want to be things, right? And I think, like, I, I was just thinking about all the films you guys were discussing, whether it be Bridget Jones, whether it be Malcolm Marie or Angus um it's it's so interesting how there's kind of like this concept that that women have this almost deficit in character and like are looking to attain a character like this there's this void and they're kind of looking to attach themselves in definition to another man in order to attain um role. So in Malcolm and Marie, we kind of see Marie, the fact that she sort of loosely perhaps wants to be a creator of some kind, like whether it be like a director or a writer or an actress, whereas for Malcolm or for kind of the other men that we've or the other male characters that we've talked about like they're already consolidated right they're already like very confident in who who they are their character has already been established their character is only further being established by the fact that like women want to be their character they're just simply looking to attain things to attain objects to attain awards to attain women to attain um Renee Zellweger's skirt like (laughs) (laughs) it's incredibly incredibly interesting um how yeah the male gaze um, I think a term first coined in 30 go I want to say after a critic I don't know her name that's really bad um, watched that um, and how if you kind of test that on, on different films you can see that you can see how that plays out how women are looking to like establish that like ossified character form and men are just looking to have things
0: yeah Definitely. I. It's interesting that you bring up um, Vertigo then as well because I think I, I might be getting my films confused and please correct me Tash if I have got my films confused <laughs> but I believe that's the one where they're kind of they they there's all these shots in the bar isn't it from different yes. people's perspectives that's one. and it's it's fascinating how we see things through that like male lens on the world and even in a film that is arguably about a woman and for a woman like literally Bridget Jones's target audience is women there's no way of dodging around that that is what it is but you still see it through the kind of bizarre lens of these two men and how they view her and how she tries to change things slightly to be better for them.
2: When Bridget Jones what really frustrates me is the um, way she kind of picks upon her weight all the time Mm. constantly managing it in her diary and it just makes me feel so uncomfortable and that that was kind of normalized like not that long ago if that was in a film today it like people would tear it apart yeah um i was on tiktok the other day and i i think i follow michelle from skins the actress Mm. and somebody asked Mm. her a question about um bombing Um, sex scenes and skins when she was like 16 and they were like were you uncomfortable and she was like of course I was and it's just oh it's interesting to think about how obviously that was like what like 10 years ago maybe Um, and the difference between how sex scenes are being approached now and then um, kind of wanted to bring up normal people and the intimacy coordinators and the same for Bridgerton I think and how Kind of women are being so much more protected on screen, and actresses are being respected. <laughs> um, right. And how awful it is that so it's, you know, what like ten years ago, women were just expected to kind of get on with it, even though it, they had no privacy, and it was an incredibly scary thing to do.
0: Yeah, I will say I'm not I'm not proud of having watched the entirety of Bridgerton, but the one thing they do do really well is the conversation they have around sex and around consent and around female pleasure, particularly. Um, and having now you've brought it up again, that's another completely problematic portrayal that I just didn't realise at the time Um skins the the age that they are all in, in skins. A lot of what happens in that show feels bizarre for them to be actively shooting it when they are that age, if that makes sense. Definitely,
1: fourteen. I want to say that like Kaya, Kaya, yeah, they yeah. they got her partner at fourteen, which is crazy to think about. That, yeah, and it
2: completely warped everyone's view of what being a teenager should be.
1: Mm. Like
2: I remember, I like everyone used to want to be Effie from Skins. She was just so mysterious and cool, and and. I think the only reason she was so cool and mysterious was because she wasn't real. Like she is, she just is not a person. She is this kind of vapid, um, crazy portrayal of what a man clearly thinks a woman is Mm. because she's just a manic pixie dream girl.
0: I think as well, the other thing that Skins raises is this whole concept of like the child actress, um, and I, the child actor in, in as a wider concept is, is very interesting. But the, the kind of hypersexualization of young female actresses. In that film, um, it's called He's Just Not That Into You, where the opening scenes are like this little girl who I think is like in a playground and she's crying because some boy kind of called her a, a name or pushed her or something. And the first thing they say to this poor kid is they're like, oh, that means he likes you. The girl is like seven. She's just upset that she can't play with somebody. Why have you made this about relationships? Why are we making conversations about children, about relationships and the way we should expect people to treat us as we grow up?
1: That's so dangerous. Well, I'm just looking at the still of that shot now. That's a really dangerous consolidation. Um, be putting out into the world to be honest it's odd isn't it but but even
0: like i just think it's a it's an interesting conversation to have about like the wider implications of of viewing girls of that age in that way we see it a lot in the film industry i think (laughs) you see it
1: in i'm gonna you see it in porn like i i don't even want to go there but you do see this horrible sexualization of like underage yeah, of children. Um and I I haven't seen sex education, but sex education do something better with portrayals of young people?
2: Oh I my goodness, care. it's so good. It's just so witty and funny and I don't know, it just obviously it's a kind of hyperbolic sense of you know, um what sex is like when you're a teenager growing up, but mm-hmm. it it's a lot more authentic in its attitudes than anything I've seen about teenagers before.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think this is what we almost need to harness from this conversation is that it's not about not representing the fact that teenagers have sex or teenagers do things that perhaps their mums and dads don't want to think about, but it's about doing it in a way that is safe and has a conversation about it and is also responsible in the way it represents the people involved. Um, And I think, again, that comes back to the choices that directors and and kind of even casting agents and people like that—it's it's holding those people accountable for the decisions they make in representing young people and the way they deal with them. And so bringing up that kind of the whole normal people thing with about intimacy coordinators, I think, is really, really important.
1: I okay, controversial, but wait, I haven't seen normal people. I know, I know, I know. What was the thing with intimacy coordinators? They they had them on set and they made sure that every like everyone felt comfortable performing sex. Yeah, so it was
2: kind of like a uh, sex scene would be choreographed rather than. Like just shot if that makes sense so that they'd know that oh i'm gonna move my leg there and then blah 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 blah, blah and it's all safe and comfortable and i know exactly what i'm doing going into that. and yeah. they would have 50 50 um female male nudity so mm-hmm. everything was equal and because i think what's so interesting is that so often like women are made to kind of take all their clothes off on screen and then men are just hardly like hardly showing any skin. And so I think that they're attempting to try and kind of change that, um, which is really important and allow male nudity to kind of have the same um, screen time as female nudity. Um, but, but yeah, so basically with normal people, I think it was just a matter of making everyone feel safe and protected,
0: which even, is great. Even as you said that my brain immediately like sprang to that scene in Love Actually where they are where well, they're literally choreographing a sex scene or, like, trying to set up the, the, the camera angles for a sex scene. It's very meta. Yeah. And um, the woman who plays Stacy, Gavin and Stacy has oh, her yeah. top off, but the guy behind her is, like, fully dressed. Yes. It's like, what was the benefit in, in that? Uh, why, why did she yeah, take her top off?
2: I was going to say we could go down a whole other route with Richard Curtis films. Yes. <laughs> because... I'm um, afraid so Emily pointed out to me how creepy um, about time is in the sense of with the sex scene when um, he, he keeps on going back in time to like perfect it.
1: <laughs> and
2: the way in which we could almost like explore how that could be sexual assault in the sense of she has no clue that he's just constantly having sex with her over and over again. an attempt to like make him come across best to her and impress her Uh, i I don't don't know if you guys know what i'm talking about yeah i do
0: that's fascinating i just had not considered that at all oh my god that's so interesting there's
2: so much which is wrong with these films that we don't even think about because they are from such a male perspective um and oh love love actually in itself like i love it it's probably my favorite christmas film just because I think it's so joyful, um, there's so much life in that film, and yet it's it's just so horrifically controversial.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting bringing up Richard Curtis as well, because I think um, his daughter is a major feminist voice in the oh, UK. I love Scarlett Curtis. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you're completely right, and there are so many almost subtle problematic elements in almost all of his films. Mm-hmm. the presentations of women it's it's really it's a like i feel like we could have this conversation for hours and hours and hours and every single thing you brought up that is one of those kind of classic movies that we all watch there would be 10 things that you could bring out of each of them that is incredibly problematic in the way it portrays women
2: yeah that's kind of what's wrong with the film industry
0: (laughs) yeah completely okay so let's flip this conversation now then if we've been slightly frustrated and and low about the way the film industry is let's let's take agency ourselves as the female gaze And we've spoken about award ceremonies i was thinking maybe we should give out our own awards to films that do it well what are the films that you think yes that's how a woman is that's that's portraying a woman correctly that's directing well that's that's giving women an appropriate voice in a film who does it well
2: I um I was thinking about this. I, I love Book Smart so much. Um I just think it's such a fun portrayal of female friendship and both characters are so different and distinct. And um I I think it's great to bring two like confident, daring women who aren't your typical popular girls to the front of um the plot and uh, yeah I just enjoy it so much and I could watch it over and over again
0: that's a good shout Chloe
1: um I would say uh never rarely sometimes always um if anyone's seen oh, that I, haven't I seen don't that. think I have no it's came out in 2020 um and it's just this wonderful relationship between these two American teenagers um and one girl is in the process of trying to basically get an abortion but she can't get it in the state that she's in so she has to go to New York to get it Um, and the kind of support between the two girls they must be maybe 15 or 16 year old 16 year old 16 year olds Um, the director's Elisa Hitman Um, and it's just like a really beautiful film it's one of those films where there's so much in it in what is unsaid like there's not a lot of dialogue in the film but you can kind of see the almost unspoken mechanisms that girls talking sometimes like a guy kind of comes in he starts talking to one of the girls and tries to like ask her out and you can see this sort of unspoken thread behind them as they try and like navigate this themselves out of the situation or like try and work out how to get out of the situation because in situations like that you're so often not going like no no thank you or like which is another problem in itself but it's kind of like how do we sort of make excuses how do we like safely, diffuse what's happening so we kind of come out of this safe and all right um so yeah it's on prime I think Uh,
0: if you can steal someone's prime and get it we recommend that that sounds like a great one every time we do one of these podcast episodes Chloe I have like 50 million things that I need to add to my watch list or read list or (laughs) (laughs) what about you Lauren Oh, I can't believe I'm about to do this. For the second week in a row, I'm about to bring up *Little Women*, um, <laughs> which is yeah one of my all-time favorite novels. Completely, but but also I thought the film was done really tastefully, um, and I just think it it represents sisterhood mm-hmm. in such a authentic way, um, which I I really enjoy the the focus it it has on, it t- almost takes away from romantic relationships in that they exist within the little woman world. And I don't know, I am that person, I will own it, who has read all four of the little woman books, which I feel like most people just read the first one and they're like, okay, we're kind of done with that. Um, but in the little woman world, relationships exist, but, and like romantic relationships exist, but they're not the most important, which I just think is so refreshing and obviously kind of bizarre that it's refreshing considering the fact that it was written a long time ago um but i just think it's done really organically well
1: also greta gerwig how did we forget greta gerwig oh of course oh my yeah, yes, got- little woman france's heart is one of my favorite films ever five stars like Five stars all the way. So beautiful. I maintain that Noah Baumbach is a better director because of being married to Greta Gerwig. I maintain that Marriage Story is a better film because she is in his life. And they are also jointly directing the Barbie film that's coming oh out. Oh my god. I'm so excited.
0: Oh my god. That's so cool. <laughs> oh god. Um, that's so cool. She, she's a yeah. really, really, again, another person who could have easily been in that woman of the week list about films. Yeah. She she's, She's cool. She's really cool.
2: I think what's great about Frances Hart is that Frances is so dislikable and so irritating. And it's brilliant when you can, you know, women are built to have flaws and be complicated and infuriating. Um, and I watched that film so many times. I always make my like best friends watch it with me because it's so full of love and friendship. Um, but whenever it's the scene when she's going to Paris, I'm sitting there being like, please don't do this, please, every single time. And I think that just kind of proves what a great film it is.
0: I like what you said. I really like what you said there about this idea of like women also uh, being allowed to be flawed. Um, I think that's the one thing that shone out to me, which I think she really got right from Louisa Miyako about uh, Little Women is that Amy played by Florence Pugh is just such the perfect like casting and portrayal of a character who, is deeply flawed, but also in the most like perfect of ways. I think actually watching the adaptation of Little Woman was the first time that I was like, oh, I get Amy now. She makes sense. And I think it's just done so tastefully in that way as well. That also, I think it's interesting because I think if you read the novel, Joe is like the shining character and everybody loves Joe and comes away being like, I want to be like Joe. But I think actually in the in the movie version, I think Amy kind of steals the limelight a little bit. I think Florence Pugh is so good in that role that she somehow, she doesn't take away from Joe, but she she just shines as much as. Greta Gerwig just has
1: the most, yeah, the, so, so talented, so, so excited um, for the Barbie film. I just, yeah, over Christmas, I, I tried to watch all of that stuff um, and it, it was just incredibly incredibly rewarding
2: um mistress america is also um very fun um, oh, in terms fabulous. of uh, female characters i think uh, it's it's they're, they're crazy
0: <laughs> okay so bringing this to a unfortunately i we have to bring it to a close because i'm finding this conversation so fascinating um i thought maybe we could do a quick what we have been watching and then following on from that what people should go and watch after they've listened to this podcast so there are a couple of films we've already sort of discussed Malcolm and Marie the other thing that I know we've all watched this kind of week is The Dig
1: oh my gosh we haven't even spoken about it I haven't even
0: (laughs) spoken about The Dig and we had such an interesting conversation before recording this podcast about The Dig does anyone want to kind of touch on thoughts and feelings
1: (laughs) Uh, it's another one would tell people to watch it um It is a good film. Um, The first half I found incredibly rewarding. I think it's interesting. It's just a really incredible topic. I think the film... We should probably
0: say what the topic is, actually.
1: Yeah. It's basically about the biggest archaeological discovery um, that England, maybe even Europe, has ever seen. Um, They discover these extensive Anglo-Saxon remains in Sunhu in Suffolk um, and find a whole ass ship which is incredible (laughs) so cool um and sort of wish they would have stuck with that topic a little bit more rather than mm,
0: what what happened
1: after yeah i don't want to give any spoilers but uh, they use certain
0: female characters if you don't want spoilers skip forward like a minute now and you won't get spoilers because i feel like it's important to talk about
1: yeah basically (laughs) lily james um, who plays Margaret, uh, last name escapes me, um, and is credited with finding like one of the first artifacts from, from the dig. They could have gone down the, the route of kind of her incredible career and what she contributes to the discovery of the remains, but they end up making making up a romantic narrative for her with a male character who doesn't I believe appear or exist in real life um when I think like in my opinion they could have gone down the route of kind of sticking with just like the fact that finding old things are really cool and that and how as you Lauren said um before before this podcast um how women kind of feature in like the archaeological community what their role is in that how they're excluded rather than going like let's talk about um
0: this clandestine relationship between these characters I think that's yeah you what i my kind of overwhelming thought from watching it um and i i really enjoyed the film as a whole so again i really do recommend people go watch it but they raise <laughs> they like tiptoe around the point that she is a woman in the world of archaeology they literally have a conversation in which she's like thank you so much for me reading my report thank you so much for asking me to be here and the guy turns around and he's like you're here because you're light and i don't want the boat to break um and they they like they're on the edge of having such a meaningful, wider conversation. But I think because um, the film is set around the time of the Second World War, because there's this convention in kind of war films that if a woman's going to be there, we kind of need to have a romantic plot to try and under- try and discover what the woman's role in war was, which is pretty much... I feel like Lily James's role is pretty much about being sad that this guy's going to go off to war mm-hmm. when she's just had her first kind of meaningful sexual experience and, and romantic experience
1: mm-hmm.
0: but she and like you said it's completely manufactured and if you wikipedia the character she it didn't happen and she actually is just this assassinating woman who did really amazing things for women in archaeology it, it just felt frustrating that that wasn't the conversation we had about women in, in that film
2: that's so true and i i'm really fascinated about the fact that harry milligan playing um edith um meant that the, the character was like 36 whereas in real life Edith was 56 and it just completely like was such an inauthentic kind of representation about what actually happened um and I it just frustrates me when they kind of force women to be younger in films because I was listening to a podcast with Jamila Jamil who was basically saying that in Hollywood there's almost this thing where women kind of like switch off at 30 they're not allowed to be on screen and why is that like why can't we see all the characters on screen and me and Chloe um, have chatted about 45 years and how that was such an exciting watch because it was kind of allowing us to see this relationship between an older couple um, and that was the focal point of the entire film and I just don't think we see that often at all.
0: You're right it's kind of like there's all these new up-and-coming actresses, and then there's Meryl Streep, and that's about it. Like, that's... And it's such an interesting... I had a conversation today with somebody talking about actors, um, and they, they used the phrase to me, because, you know, time is a, of the essence with actors. And, even, like, the fact that that's just what we accept. We're like, okay, well, you kind of got this span of, I don't know, 20 years to be an active creative, And then after that, you need to have made enough money by that point to live off of because you're not getting anything substantial past that point. It's so interesting. Like, why why can't we have women play the age they really are? Why does... And the conversation about Edith in particular, I think is fascinating because Carrie Mulligan is well known as... I mean... Her, I'd say the role that she's best known for is probably Daisy in Gatsby and everybody knows what Daisy in Gatsby is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. So why why have we completely changed the appearance of a 56 year old woman to make her almost glamorous? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a story about being glamorous at all. It was a story about dying pretty much.
1: Yeah, it's not like we have a deficit of um, older female actors by any means, so.
0: Yeah, and that's not to take away from the fact that Carrie Mulligan was brilliant in it she is a brilliant actress but she was not she was not the appropriate casting choice I think is the overriding theme okay so films that you think people should go and watch after this anybody got a shout on that one
2: I think if we're talking about women in film then I definitely recommend Thelma and Louise Muriel's Wedding um Ooh, what else like baby teeth that's just come out i really enjoyed that i thought that
1: was oh that's good awesome. that's good yeah yeah
2: um rocks as well it's on netflix um an incredible portrayal of young teenagers in london um quite heartbreaking definitely don't watch if you don't want to shed a few tears <laughs> um i'm trying to think what do you guys have any other ideas
1: i'm gosh i feel like we've whizzed through so many my head's not to explode um God I would just say anything red to is in generally. Oh,
2: um, uh, anything uh, Celine Scammer.
1: Yes, oh, yes, yeah. Of definitely. Yeah. She's got a new film coming out which is really exciting. I'm so excited about. Um yeah. I think most of her stuff if not all is on movie. Um yes. So definitely I go for that.
2: Um yeah. Yeah.
0: I I'm going to um, I'm going to go for some new releases then or things that I'm looking forward to watching. Um and I think Promising Young Woman is is one of those. I think that sounds really interesting. Uh, Moxie, which I mentioned last week, really looking forward to focus on mother-daughter relationship. Um, But yeah, there's lots of options there, I think. Lots of things to go and see. And also, Tash, I think this is a nice segue into... Have you been working on something that we could possibly see in the future?
2: Yes, um, me and my friend, um, Rosie, um, co-wrote and co-directed a film over summer. Um, and it's just it's a short film, so it's only like 15 minutes, um, but we're basically exploring that kind of time between school and university when it's a bit confusing and you're kind of being independent for the first time properly, and you're um, waiting for university to come along. Um, and it's about a young girl who comes back from a holiday to find that her best friend has gone off on this wild romance with the boy of her dreams and kind of replaced her with him. And it all seems too good to be true. And then of course it is all too good to be true. And um, I think the girls are kind of forced to acknowledge the fact that their love for each other is far more powerful than any like fleeting summer romance could be. So we're kind of putting it towards, um, festivals this weekend we're sending it in which is very exciting and um, but unfortunately because um, you can't have films under the public domain when they when you're kind of um submitting them for festivals it means that we can't just put it on youtube at the moment so we'll probably put it on vimeo or something like that with the password protected um, key thing and so um, if people want to watch it they can definitely get in contact with me and i can send them a password and stuff um, but yeah I can't wait to have it out in the world it's very exciting
0: <laughs> that's so exciting and we will we will make sure you are tagged in everything so that you can go and find that because I watched the trailer yesterday and I already am desperate to see it so it sounds oh, so amazing so yeah and who knows I reckon a few years down the line golden globes and uh, and maybe we'll start listening to them again at that point <laughs> <laughs> definitely amazing Thanks. It's been so lovely to have you on the podcast and such a really, really fascinating conversation that I'm sure we can, I hope we can come back to again. I think there's so much more to be said on this topic.
2: Definitely. (laughs) Because the film industry is changing all the time. Like as we were saying with Bridget Jones, how much films have changed since then. And of course, like in a few years time, it'll change all over again, hopefully for the best.
1: Wow. This has probably been one of my favourite episodes to record today. Um, yeah uh thank you guys for this thing thank you so much Tash for coming on board and having a chat with us um yeah always always a pleasure uh I will shout out Tash's letterbox because she does the best reviews thank you (laughs) I I do try hard with them I can't lie (laughs) trying to be witty they are they're brilliant I think me and Tash we kind of clicked over lockdown and We're listening. We're watching the souvenir, and we're watching a lot of films. And I, yeah, you recommended Forty Five Years to me, which you spoke about earlier. But she has the most wonderful recommendations um, and such a like insane outlook and beautiful commentaries on films. So yeah, thank you. Thank you on board. Um, Thank you guys for listening. We will see you guys next week uh, for a very very exciting episode about women in STEM, um, which will be yeah I- I'm psyched with that but till then uh hope everyone has a wonderful week and a wonderful weekend. I've been Chloe. <laughs> you
0: didn't sound that sure then. <laughs> I never am it all ultimately- depends. <laughs> uh I've been Lauren and we've been the female gays. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Thanks guys. Bye.